he asked, does anybody have anything they want to ask today? Any questions? Sometimes when you meditate, um, it feels, you feel confused. Um, is that normal or is that sort of like something that we have to learn to analyze or cope with? He says it's important to see that the confusion you might be noticing is not created by meditation, <coughs> it's just what's there already. And normally in our daily lives we're thinking a lot and often in not a very skillful way or not a very controlled way, so that thinking tends to create confusions and different kinds of mental stress, suffering. Um, when we sit, sit down to meditate and we calm our minds a little bit trying to focus today on the breath or a meditation object, the first thing you notice is you're, you're exposing what's there already, you're make, making it clearer to yourself, you're seeing, oh, my mind is thinking a lot, maybe very confused. So you should just accept that, first of all, it's just normal for the mind to be like that when it's untrained, undeveloped. Um, and the way to deal with it skillfully is to develop this quality of mindfulness, where we're developing a constant awareness of the mind. And we use a meditation object for that, such as the breathing, or sometimes we use a mantra, the word Bhutto in Thailand, it's a mantra, you just recite this word Bhutto, Bhutto, Bhutto. Um, whatever technique you're using in your meditation, you aim to develop constant knowing and awareness. And it's through that that the sense of confusion will start to calm down, disperse, you feel feel more calm, more concentrated. So it's, um, when it does calm down, so what sort of an aspect are we trying to achieve? The main aim of meditation is to get to know your mind and understand it. And that doesn't mean to say that one fixes an ideal in the mind, that I've got to be peaceful. Because if you have that, I want a peaceful mind and say in the times you're not yet peaceful, you'll tend to get irritated with yourself and unhappy because of that. So your aim is just to know the mind and although you're, you're practicing developing constant awareness of the mind, there will be times when you're not yet peaceful, there's thoughts and confusion coming up. So just know that, know, oh, now I'm confused. There'll be times when your mindfulness, your concentration improves and the confusion disappears. And you know that, oh now I'm peaceful, I'm calm, I'm concentrated. Whatever the experience is, just know it for what it is. That's right. Are there any other questions? And uh, doing something like that. Some people say that meditation is meant to be when you're sitting down and you're just meditating, breathing, uh, and uh, like working on something via meditation as well. Yes, of course, one can um, develop the same qualities that we are developing in, say, formal meditation yeah, at any time of your day, in any activities, any posture. If you're doing some work, you can use that as the focus of your mindfulness and whatever job work you're doing. And the main thing when you're practicing mindfulness you're restraining your mind, not letting it fall into the usual mental proliferation or confusion that takes it away from the present moment. So you're letting go of thoughts about the future, planning, worrying, concerns of the future. 
you're letting go of um, different thoughts about the past. When you're doing a, a job and you're practicing mindfulness, you just bring your mind to focus on that job. And you'll find if you learn to do this in your daily life, you're bringing up mindfulness at all times through your day. And then if you're practicing meditation in the formal way, regularly, when you come to sit meditation, your mind will be more prepared and more calm already from the practicing the mindfulness through your day. So your, your meditation will go better for it. Say this is also 
the suffering of life, what we call the, um, when the Buddha taught, he used to talk about the Four Noble Truths and the First Noble Truths, that there is stress and suffering associated with living as a human being. And we can see it in that broader picture that these kind of things happen. You have to go out, earn a living. As you earn a living, you have problems, obstacles, challenges that come up. And these can cause mental stress, mental suffering. And you can see this is part of our, our situation as human beings, is that we have to find a living, we have to get food, shelter, we have to live in this world, and there's suffering associated with that. Um, that's just to be aware of that. What you're doing is bringing aware, awareness up of, to say, the unsatisfactory side of life. And with that awareness, you, you get wisdom, you get understanding, oh, it's like this, life is like this. This isn't to react or judge it or get emotional about it, it's just to know, oh, it's this way. And when you can have that kind of awareness, that understanding, that, that gives you wisdom that can help to keep your mind more peaceful. Because you know, oh, it's like this when you work, you make mistakes and it's, you get difficulties like this. You know that, so you, you, feel, you can feel better then. Not only that, it's also warning you when you reflect like this about the suffering of life, you're also getting a warning that probably not the only time it's going to arise. There'll be more cases like this. All of us are subject, at the very least, we all have to get older in life. With older age, we get more sickness, more pain, discomfort. One day we're going to have to die. Uh, and all other kind of associated suffering. So when you reflect wisely on some situation of suffering that's arisen, you can also say, hmm, life is like this, and I'm going to maybe have more of this. Again, what it's doing is giving you that understanding that keeps your mind peaceful in these different situations. And then you've got the whole picture. You see the unsatisfactory side of our existence as human beings. You're not lost, say, in an ideal that wants everything to be perfect, where it can't be. And so this, this is wisdom. Not suffering. And this obviously suffering has arisen, but you're making your suffering into something useful by contemplating it, seeing it for what it is. Oh, this is why we call it wisdom. Actually, one small question. Sorry. Um, I have this personal philosophy. Um, normally, when you think of something, you actually give the thought of it. You give them, and you give um, a position for it to exist. In terms of Buddhism is how does Buddhism shape, you know, when you create the whole? Um, say, for example, uh, there is a dragon. You give thought to it and you create that thought with energy. Uh, in terms of Buddhism, you see that as a, uh, you know, what we think is what we create, or, um, you know, is it, does it just exist as a fact? When you just think it. Sorry? You said you have the thought there is a dragon, you mean you're just thinking there is a dragon? No, yeah, when you think about it, you, um, you know, if you think of good and evil, you think of the devil. And then you say, well, if, you, if I give thought to the devil, thinking that it exists, then I give that energy, I give it a position to exist in a realm. He doesn't understand the question. If you're just saying, say, a concept then. There's a concept that there's good and evil, or a devil, yeah. that you've thought up yourself. No, I mean, uh, so as we were young, we brought up, you know, knowing good and evil. Mm. Now, in evil, into the extreme, we think of, you know, the devil and stuff like that. Um, so, 
when we think about it too, um, I always felt, you know, my personal thought was you think about it, you give it energy. You acknowledge something, you give it energy, and you give it a position to exist in. So, or when you don't give it the energy of the thought, it doesn't exist, it can't exist, it doesn't have a place to exist. Really, with this sort of thing, you've just got to look at what you know from your own experience in your own mind. And if you talk about good and evil, or good and bad karma, this is something you learn from your own experience in your life, looking at your mind, looking at the state of mind. And you can see, if you think in what we call good ways, positive ways, wholesome ways, then it brings the mind more happiness, more sense of peace and happiness. If you think in ways that you would call evil, unwholesome ways, unskillful ways, then they'll bring you more suffering, more cause and more unhappy states of mind as a result. And this is karma which you can start to observe from your own experience. And the Buddha, in Buddhism we talk about Kilesa Mara, which is like uh, the devil inside. I mean, it's no person, it's just these states of mind, either wholesome or unwholesome. If we give attention and uh, energy to unwholesome states of mind, or they bring us more unhappiness and suffering in different ways. That's karma. Um, if we give attention to wise, skillful states of mind, skillful thinking, and we give energy to that, it will bring us more happiness and more benefit to our lives, and it will affect our speech, our actions, everything else. Um, as far as any external forces, you might say, like an external devil or Mara, and the word we use in Buddhism. Um, we can't be sure if we haven't seen it or not, have a direct experience or something like that. We can't be sure, so we have to acknowledge that. Furthermore, I can't be sure. But if we um, just go on the suttas, the Buddhist teachings, they say, well, there are those uh, beings or forces, external beings. We call they were Buddha Mara, like um, Maras who are, are a being in another realm that we can't see. And if we are doing good in our life. Then there are those beings we call good beings, usually referred to as devas. They will tend to encourage and increase the thing we're doing. They'll support us in what we're doing, just the way human beings can support each other to do good. And there are other beings who would, um, if we're doing evil, unwholesome things, might support us in that, just as as human beings you can see that might support you in doing unwholesome things. But until we really know for ourselves, you know, have a direct experience of these beings, or we can only accept what well, maybe they do exist, maybe not. What we can know though is our own hearts and what the, the karma we're making up, our own intentions, and the happiness and the suffering we create through our own intentions, our own actions. Previous day when I was studying about Christianity, and they say that God creates. And then I was, um, I was saying, you know, if God creates us, you know, we also create God. I think that's what I think his question is about. Can you reconcile about what Buddha say in our minds before our The teachings of various religions say that, Buddha, the, that God created the world. Perhaps this is... Um, a skillful means for getting people to uh, give rise to very wise, wholesome mind states where they have a sense of caring for the world. That we say that God created the world, gives a sense of love for the world, for people of the world, the environment, as so that brings very wholesome mind states when we reflect like this. In Buddhism, there's a slightly different approach. 
Buddhism, the Buddha taught that avicca creates the world. Avicca is not knowing, the state of not knowing, or ignorance, or misunderstanding of truth. And when the human mind has this avicca, or ignorance, overcoming it, it will tend to bring up a sense of self all the time, which identifies with this body, this mind, our experience, and even the world. We can say things, this is my my part of the world, my house, my car, my land, my everything. This sense of self is fed by this avicca, or not knowing, and our desires, our attachments, all flow from this not knowing, not understanding truth. So the Buddhist way of dealing with this is to build up the opposite of not knowing or ignorance, which is knowing. To develop the knowing, the understanding that comes from developing awareness, a continuous awareness. And when we develop this continuous awareness and we can see that process where ignorance is conditioning the arising of this sense of self, the desires, the attachments that we're normally lost into, when you can see that, then obviously we start to detach from the normal process of attaching to things, labeling things, creating a sense of self around our experience. With that detachment, you could say there's no longer, if one really detaches from the sense of self, there's no longer anybody who builds the world, creates the world, there's no one who owns the world. So that whole kind of way of looking at things disappears because there's no longer a self, there's no one who creates or builds the world. What controls the flow of thoughts in our mind? Do we have the control of thoughts ourselves? You can say that our normal, the normal mental proliferation that we have, the normal thinking we have, um, is fed by this avicca, this ignorance or under, misunderstanding of truth. As long as we don't have a full awareness, full understanding of truth, we'll keep proliferating, thinking all kinds of things coming up. And they, they generally lead us to suffering, their experience of suffering, the more we have them. But Buddhism also talks about something, these, these, sorry, those first kind of thoughts we call sankharas, mental formations, conditions, proliferations. But Buddhism also talks about what we call visankara, which is mental formations coming from wisdom and understanding, the opposite. And when we train our minds to have good awareness, perfect awareness and understanding through investigating truth, coming to understand truth, and we have deep insight, we can still have thoughts arising, but those thoughts are coming from insight, so they're wisdom, and they don't lead to any kind of suffering, they don't lead to us building up a sense of self, a sense of ownership of this body, and mind, and our experience, and therefore we don't have suffering. But Obviously, to get to that point, one has to train in the Buddhist path, and that's quite a, um, a profound thing to do. So, intellectually, we might already understand this to some extent, that if we develop awareness, we can see how attachment causes our suffering, attachment to a sense of self, so we can see the value of practicing letting go of that attachment, developing the awareness, the understanding to let go of attachments, and we'll have less suffering. Intellectually, we can understand that, and that's partly probably why people are here, isn't it? You have faith that there's that, that potential, human beings have that potential, they can practice, they can reach this state we call enlightenment, where you're free from all attachment, all suffering, and that sense of self is gone. But we can't do it yet, so this is why we practice. We're here, is to develop our practice. We practice generosity, we practice living in a moral way, a peaceful way, 
we practice being kind to our fellow members of society, our family members of society, the members of society. And all of this supports the arising of the, the awareness and the understanding that we have to, have to develop deeper and deeper through our practice, through our meditation. I in the suttas, the Buddhist teaching he says just there is a mention of how human beings came about it's an evolution of human beings and that's um, originally there were what we call Brahma gods living in celestial plane, heaven realm and Brahmas they usually are not eating food in the way we eat their, their nourishment is what we spiritual nourishment, the pity, the rapture, the joy of the mind sustains them in that realm, in that existence and then the physical world when it started the, this, this teaching says there was um, the original earth surrounding, say the, the surrounding earth that surrounded the world was very, very delicious because it's very pure, there's no people, no beings, no animals, nothing living there. So very, very delicious, you could compare it to say, very sweet milk or um, some very nice delicious fruit. And these Brahmas, um, celestial beings, tasted a bit of it, thought, mm, this tastes nice then started eating more because it tasted nice and as they did that their own state of mind started to slip to a more coarser level because this is sensuality where you're eating something you're getting attached to the taste and with the coarser states of mind then the form the physical form that became coarser from the subtle form of a celestial being became coarser as a human being in the end you've got human beings men women and that's how the Buddha said it all started. That's what's in the suttas. So as you can reflect that, you look at the world every day, there's more people being born into the world. The number of the overall population of the world is going up and up and up and up. And it, that would seem to be an endless thing, that it's just increasing all the time. Um, the Buddha also said not only that, it's increasing all the time, but there's uh, as, being, as human beings, this isn't the first time we've been born either. We've been born many, many times. And not just as human beings, there's many realms of existence. So you can say, where are all these beings coming from? Well, one explanation would then be actually being born out of other realms and becoming human beings. And those realms could be heavenly realms, or what you would say higher realms than the human, because they experience more happiness in those realms. Lower realms, sometimes animal realms, or even lower than that, ghost realms, whatever. The Buddha said that process is going on all the time, over and over again. And this is, this is what we call the state of suffering, isn't it? The suffering of existence, being born and dying, being born and dying, born and dying, born and dying, over and over again with no end. And you can even contemplate, well, why do people come into this world with different ex life experiences? You know, some people are born um, into a rich family, a healthy family, with a healthy body and a good situation. Others are born into poverty, others are born with disease, others are born in a place where there's war and famine and 
problems. Why is that? Why do we have our different character traits? We're born into the world with different characters, different ways of thinking. All of this is karma, isn't it? And that's in another indication that we've we built up karma over many lifetimes, not just this lifetime. So good and the bad we've done. Um, the Buddha always brought it back to being very practical. What's what's really practical for us as human beings right now in this life is are we suffering? And to look at suffering, where does suffering come from? And try to understand it. And this is what the Buddhist teachings are about. If you find you're still experiencing stress and suffering, at the very least we're all experiencing getting older. We get sick, sometimes we get sick. We have pain, discomfort, and all of us are going to have to face death in the end. When you observe that with mindfulness, with awareness, you can see it's important to keep developing myself spiritually and to find a way out of the suffering. Because I do have stress, I do have different kinds of suffering. And that's the purpose of this practice, to develop ourselves in generosity, in morality, in mindfulness, in wisdom, all the different spiritual parts or factors of this path. We develop them to, to, to get beyond suffering. And the question was if we've been around and we've made lots of karma, good and bad, do we have to receive the fruits of all the karma we've made, good and bad? and use it up, as it were, before we can become enlightened. Is that the way we become enlightened? Tanajan said that probably it would be impossible to become enlightened just by waiting to use up all the results of your past karma and experience the results of the good and the bad you've done. Because you've done so much good and bad in many, many lifetimes, countless lifetimes, that store of karma that is giving its result is, is endless. So there must be another way, and the other way is where you practice in the present moment to develop yourself in good ways, develop good karma, body, speech and mind. And this is what we call the Buddhist path, the practice of um, developing good karma, abandoning unwholesome or unskillful karma, developing good karma, and this over time has a purifying effect on your mind, you experience less and less suffering because your mind is experiencing the results of the good karma you're making. And it reaches the point where you reach the end of the path, the end of suffering, and your old karma can't all give its results. You've made so much good karma, you've purified your mind to the point where um, your old karma can can no longer give any results, because that's that's what the state of enlightenment is, what is no longer making any any karma. Can I ask a question about this process of sexual misconduct? Uh, In modern life, Nowadays, it's very common people living together without getting married, and then there's a this this kind of relationship like uh, having a lesbian, homosexual, and if people living in this kind of relationship, can they still attain enlightenment? The purpose of sila or moral conduct, moral guidelines that we follow, is to bring a sense of restraint to the mind and that sense of restraint and the peace that arises from it allows the mind to develop its concentration to the point of one-pointedness. If one has breaches of sila, breaches of morality, that one is harming oneself, harming others, then the, the result of that is the mind is not stable, it's not firm, it becomes shaky, it has, has remorse, regret, different kind of mental states which stop samadhi arising. And then, of course, if samadhi is not strong, concentration is not strong, it's very difficult to see the truth 
penetrate the truth of the na- true nature of our existence so then the mind would not be purified and reach enlightenment so it's important to see the value of sila or morality in this way and particularly because when we come into this world we already have a store of what we call mental defilements we have a store of greed different kinds of ill will, anger and different kinds of delusion and that's already affecting us if we have no sila then it's just going to be coming out all the time in what we say, what we do as well as what we think and we'll have a lot of suffering so even more so important when we have already have a store of green anger and delusion then we should be practicing sila to restrain it so at least we're not making more unwholesome karma for ourselves or others harming people or harming ourselves and then if you're practicing that that sense of lightness, ease relaxed sense of mind that arises from following, following moral guidelines living in a moral way will allow you to develop meditation at one point in your mind and, and uh, understand the, the true nature of our existence But Thomas, this kind of thing you know, people seem to accept it and they say they are quite happy so like in a theater, uh different standard for different people some people feel that taking other people's things is, is nothing wrong so can you still accept the karma in the mind because they don't feel guilty at all? If people don't see the fruits of their actions yet, it's because of the presence of delusion they're not very aware. Uh, but that doesn't nullify the results of what they're doing or may mean that there's no karma at work. Karma is a natural law, it's a natural thing that you can see at work all the time. And if people are creating the causes for suffering, say in the way they act, the way they speak, and then that suffering will come whether they recognize it or not. Um, it's even worse if they don't recognize it because they won't see it, see what they're doing and how they're causing themselves suffering. But important, more important is for someone who does see this principle, understands karma and understand, looks at their life and says, oh, there's certain ways that you, know, you act, you speak in this way, act in this way, and it brings you suffering. When you see that, then that's the, you know, your motivation to keep precepts because you want to live in a happy way you're free from that suffering, the regret, the remorse. The question was, uh, how important is our state of mind at the time of death as far as what will determine where we, the experience we have after we die, where we'll be reborn and the experience we have of happiness, suffering in future. Uh, and Ajahn says, uh, yes it is important, um, but more important is how we're dealing with our life, what we're doing with our minds right now in the present. Because the future comes from the present. And what we should be doing is developing our awareness and uh, learning to restrain the unwholesome tendencies of mind. We should be un- trying to restrain the unwholesome tendencies of mind, the unskillful tendencies of mind that cause us suffering in the present. Um, because of course if we, we don't do anything about them, then they keep causing us suffering and right at the end of life they'll cause us suffering. So the more we develop awareness, the more we develop clarity and understanding of what is wholesome, skillful states of mind, what is unwholesome, sta- skills, unwholesome states of mind, and we practice accordingly, start to abandon, give up the unwholesome states of mind, try to develop the skillful ones, um, develop them, bring them up more often, then we're preparing for death in the best possible way, um, because that habit will be established. So whether 
we don't know when we're going to die, but whenever the time comes, we'll have been practicing already, so we'll know how to keep our mind in a skillful, wholesome state, we'll be right through to the end of our life. Uh, and that's the best of, best preparation for our next life. If there is such a thing as next life, and we want to have a, a, an experience of a happy next life, we reborn somewhere in a happy state as a result of our good karma that we've been developing, then the best thing to do is develop that now and you'll be, you'll be well, most best, best prepared for the last moment of your life. Um, the question was to do with if we um, haven't yet reached enlightenment, the end of suffering, how can we ensure that we maybe come back and we get the chance to carry on practicing in the future life? That if we have faith in the Buddhist teachings, that we'll meet with the Buddhist teachings and have a, an opportunity to practice uh, should we make a vow, some kind of a vow, should we do it all the time? And Tanajan said, well, try and make that your basic attitude, that everything you're doing is for the end of suffering, for realizing the truth and ending, ending, ending the suffering in your heart. And you basically dedicate everything you do in life to that end, especially any kind of acts of goodness that you're deliberately doing. And you sit down to meditate, it should be for the end of suffering. You're, do some offerings, offer some dharma, it's for the end of suffering. And your view is really, if, if I haven't yet reached the end of suffering, well then, in the next life, may I have further opportunities to practice for the end of suffering, which means, well, may I meet, reach a place, may I meet with the Buddhist teachings again, meet with teachers, meet with fellow practitioners who can support me in my practice for the end of suffering. So if you make that, your whole the kind of basis for what you do in life and that's your guiding viewpoint then, then naturally it will also guide you right at the end of your life and that's it's a very powerful good karma that you're making that wholesome aspiration so it should um, bring its results in future lives as well it's memory or people are past karma if it means how do we uh, overcome unpleasant and unskillful memory and thought so that we can carry on with the uh, path of practice? Although um, our memories and our thoughts are certainly related to the past, they're not completely just uh, the results of what we've done in the past, they're also affecting what we're doing in the present moment, from moment to moment. And we should remember that, because that's the, why the Buddha said this is the place of practice, the present moment. Because not only is the present the result of the past, but it's also the cause for the future. And where we make our karma is every moment, isn't it? With every intention that is arising, that we're, we are having wholesome intentions, unwholesome intentions. This is making karma for the future. It's not just receiving the results of past karma. So this is why we have very simple guidelines in Buddhism. Try to let go, abandon any unwholesome intentions that are arising in your mind, unwholesome thoughts. Try to develop, bring out and develop wholesome, skillful intentions in your mind. And by this doing this, we're purifying our mind. It will bring more good results, more benefit to us in the future. And um, as far as the past goes, we can't change the past, so we have to let go of the past. We can't, we can't change it. So if we're letting go, practicing letting go like this in the present, that letting go is is creating this, um, the causes for future happiness as well. Then if we if we are trying to let go of the past, then why we take thought to 
photo. Yes. Why? <laughs> he says maybe this is the first question that he can't answer. <laughs> of course, photographs are what we call sanya, they're memories, things that have happened in the past. But you can use memory skillfully in the present. So what you what you remember, what you recollect, the word, best word is recollect. When you talk about mindfulness, it's where the Buddhist mindfulness means recollecting. And you can rec- choose to recollect skillful things that are useful to you, that bring up good, positive states of mind, bring up happiness. So if you take photographs, say you've been to monasteries, you've been listening to teachers, and you take photographs of them, and one day you look at that photograph and it brings up the recollection of the Buddha or the Dhamma, the Sangha, wholesome states of mind arise, don't they? You recollect the teachings that you heard, the understanding that you got, the peace of mind, the joy that you got, you're recollecting that. So you can use sanya or memories like that skillfully in practice. When you're practicing meditation, what are you doing? You're recollecting something, it's an object, a meditation object, but you're recollecting it at that time and it helps you. But obviously we have to be um, this, have, use our discretion if it's unwholesome memories, things that we've done, you know, mistakes we've made, bad things we've done in the past. The thing to do is acknowledge it and then let it go. That's not something you want to keep remembering because it doesn't make you feel good. It makes you feel guilty, feel sad. So if it comes up, you just know, oh, that was something that happened, and you let it go. But the skill, the useful memories, the positive ones, you can bring up over and over again, and they can bring more use, more benefit in the in the present moment. You can use them that way. Actually, your past and children's photo, your wedding photo is true. The problem is not the photographs; it's us. What we do with them. If you have a problem with your photographs, just leave them there in the book, whatever they, wherever they are. Just just store them there. If the problem starts when you go and start looking at it and your attachments and the suffering and problems come up from looking at them, you just leave them there. Any day that you have an argument with your husband and you're getting really angry and upset with him, go and open the photograph of your wedding day and remind yourself, on that day he loved me so much, I loved him so much. This is the skillful use of photographs. The question was, Having stated now for a few weeks how does Tanakan feel um, comparing Buddhism and the practice and the lay people here and with the practice and the lay people in Thailand. And he said he's been very um, impressed with the fact that here everybody is asking questions directly about Dharma practice, about meditation, about the teachings uh, and a lot of questions for the last few weeks. Um, probably more than he would normally be asked in the same period of time in his monastery in Thailand. Um, but he said partly that's because the system is a little bit different. Um, says the system here is a bit more like in the time of the Buddha when people come, they offer food and then after the food they sit down, listen to Dhamma, ask questions. In Thailand, um, they eat the meal a lot earlier and generally if he gives teachings it's before the meal there and he'll some days he'll teach, give a talk, some days he won't. If he doesn't, they'll tend to just sit meditation until the monks receive the food. And generally, as soon as the food is eaten and everyone's had their food, they go home. And so partly that's because people live much closer to monasteries, and partly perhaps because there are so many monasteries, so many monks around, that there's that sense of, I can come back and ask my question any time. 
Um, whereas here, people come and drive a lot further than generally people are in Thailand, and so perhaps there's a slightly higher sort of commitment going to the monastery, driving a long way, so before going home, want to hear some Dhamma, listen to the Dhamma. But he says if he did it like in Thailand here, and before the monks ate here, gave a Dhamma talk, like he would in his monastery where he just talk before the meal, then the monks would never get to eat because we had to eat by midday. And there wouldn't be enough time for that. Um, he also quoted one teacher in Thailand, a famous teacher, Ajahn Buddhadasa, who said Thai people are sometimes a bit like people who raise chickens but never get to eat the eggs because the Thais have great faith and support the religion and they go to monasteries to support the monasteries. Um, but often they, they don't wait for the Dhamma talk, they go home. So. <laughs> <laughs> One must also remember that being a Buddhist country, Buddhist culture in Thailand, the, the level of faith is very high. And because people have great faith, they offering arms, offering food to monks, often they already feel a lot of joy, a lot of happiness for that, so that's enough. They can take that feeling home with them, they don't need more than that. Um, and I shouldn't just think that nobody's practicing or interested to practice Buddhism there, because of course they have this high faith, so when the time, there is a time to practice and they really put their effort in, so when people come to meditate they can really give it their full go. And you know, the, the number of people who go into monasteries to keep precepts, both men and women, and to ordain, you know, it, it's very high as a percentage of the population. You know, many of the males of Thailand have been monks, at least for a temporary period of their life. So one must remember that as well, that the people's level of faith is very high, so there's a sense of, I can go and practice whenever, but when I do go, oh, I really practice, I really put my full effort in. Um, is it possible for someone out of compassion to take on someone else's karma? No, you can't. Karma is something that each individual makes and has to receive the results themselves. You can't, can't transfer it like that. Because I heard a story about um, about Adan Chah, where uh, one of his disciples wanted to, because uh, towards the end of Adan Chah's life, he was really, he was quite sick, quite ill. And one of his disciples was quite compassionate and wanted to take on his uh, karma. But then Adan Chah sort of said, um, there's too much pain and suffering, and uh, you, you probably won't be able to take it on. So this one really that's, you know, yeah, he's heard of that story. In that case, Ajahn Chah was probably referring to the fact that Ajahn Chah himself had great Bharamese. His spiritual development was very advanced. He had um, great samadhi, great wisdom, and purity of mind. So he could deal with all the physical pain and suffering of his illness, that 10-year period of illness. And he's probably implying that this person who was offering to take it on really it was more than they could bear because their level of mindfulness, wisdom was not at the same level. Um, and again, I said, normally, as human beings, you know, we could wish to do that for others, but our level of the level of our mind and our barami is not such that we could really do much um, to take somebody else's karma away. But perhaps on a very refined level, very high level, of certain practitioners whose meditation and their barami is very developed. On the level of, say, just basic weight and other feeling, the painful feeling some of the experience, they might be able to relieve them of that a little. 
that that kind of karma maybe one could affect a bit, but that's not really general that most people could do that. No, because I was thinking if that's true, then the Buddha out of his compassion could escape all our karma. You could say that, but you know it's impossible, isn't it? Cause that would just mean anyone could do anything they want. They wouldn't have to worry about the results, it could be terrible bad things and oh it's okay, the Buddha will sort it out, the Buddha will sort out our, our karma. So the Buddhist teachings are actually what we call the middle way, they're correct, they're in line with you might say natural justice or they're correct and, and in the middle way in the sense that everybody receives the results of our karma. What we do, we get back to us. Uh, it's, it's the ultimate democracy or you know, universal <laughs> law. We, we all are subject to that. The most important thing in when we make merit and do different kinds of goodness, good acts, good deeds, is firstly we experience the fruits in the in the present we are. It makes us feel good, we feel happy, we get benefit from those different good acts. The Buddhists did say there is one class of beings, Parapatthujiwaka Pretas, certain kind of hungry ghosts that can receive the fruits of merit, meritorious deeds. But um, it's just that one class. As far as devotees go, then they've already made a lot of good karma and they're already experiencing a lot of happiness from that. They could maybe be happy for us making good karma when it's able to know, but they they don't really need the fruits, the merits that we're making because they already have. So the most important person who's receiving is yourself. So, and then it's quite good how to say, as I transfer my merit to my family or to the if it's somebody who's alive, what they can do, they can be happy for you doing good. Like you see someone doing good, you can feel happy for them. So even though you're not transferring karma or anything, what they're, doing, they're rejoicing in your, the good that you're doing. So that's, you know, that's something you can cause in, in the hearts of other people. If it's the dead, it's a, it's a bit harder because they're not, they're not there to, to see the, the good you're doing. But uh, you are doing good and you know you've done good, so that joy that arises in your heart has a very positive effect on your heart. And then people you meet, anyone you're in contact with, could also benefit from that because your mind is positive. But every time you see that when uh, uh, you do Dharma, they started to do the chanting, transfer Mary to the Deva, to this, to that, and, uh, and then now you say it's not. They, they can be affected. Other beings in other realms can be affected because they're rejoicing or they're happy in the goodness that we are doing. That it can trigger, it can be a trigger or be a cause for them to feel happy.